Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So we are in a series on messy spirituality, and let's see if I can do this. Okay. Um, yeah. And this, is, it's, and this, this whole series has been intended for us to take time to clarify pieces of what we believe and who we are as a church. And so today, we want to re-examine how we think biblically about the devil and forces of evil and destruction in our everyday lives. So it's just your happy, light topic for today. Okay? So here we go. So anyway, we're going to begin with two scriptures. The first is um, the Apostle Paul's final word to the church at Ephesus. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So the devil, evil, mighty, powerful rulers, spirits of unseen world, I mean, what do you guys do with this scripture? And then what do you do with Peter's words of warning to the believers who are experiencing real pain and persecution for being a follower of Jesus? And he said to them, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter refers to Satan as our adversary. That emphasizes that this is personal. He describes the devil as a roaring lion on the prowl, not just wanting to scare, but to devour. And that visual had to be so much more powerful for the Christians that Peter was writing to because they had seen lions in gladiator games literally devouring people. So these verses describe that each of us are in a battle. So how do you see this battle in your life? And how do you fight the rulers of an unseen world? I mean, that sounds difficult, maybe intimidating, maybe abstract, or just plain weird. So we just want to look to see how God wants us to be more effective and confident in how we live this life. So an example of someone who lived with a mindset of fighting the unseen world and powerful forces with God and changing evil in an entire nation is someone that Ross talked about back in our Wisdom series, and that was William Wilberforce. He was a man that's often cited as one of the most effective social reformers. And after coming to faith as an adult... Wilberforce took two years to listen to what he felt like God wanted him to focus his life, and he identified that it was to end the slave trade in England and to reform the morals of England. I mean, just two easy goals, right? We can do that, right? And he saw them completed. And in order to live this strategic and powerful life in God, there are two things that he kept clear that Ross didn't have the time to talk about a lot, and it really has been striking me, and I've been sitting with it. On his deathbed, John Wesley, who is another Christian who led millions to Christ, um, he wrote a, a letter to Wilberforce, and he warned him to not fight in his own strength, because that would be insane, but to rely on God. And he said to realize that this is not merely a political or a cultural battle, but a spiritual one. Wesley wrote to him, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. And so to fight something as evil as a slave trade, you're going to go against invisible demonic force, and the only way to win it is to maintain a reliance and a confidence in God, knowing that it is only through him that has the power to fight and win this. I mean, it would have been really easy for Wilberforce, who was working with all the political entities, to get really angry and frustrated with people who were defending slavery. 
but he knew that there were other forces at work and it allowed him to work with them because he knew that it was more than flesh and blood. He, he lived with this belief that every battle worth fighting is at its core a spiritual battle. So I've just been sitting with that and thinking like, do I, do I really believe that? And do I really believe that I'm in a spiritual battle? And if so, like, how do I see this in my own life? Maybe my experiences with, um, is similar to yours. I've been teaching psychology. It's one of my jobs for over 25 years at different colleges. And it's just now being a little bit more accepted to believe in a God, right? And then if you add to this belief that you believe in a God and you believe it's a personal relationship and that you listen to God and you try to hear his voice, you're pushing it when it comes to academia acceptability, right? Um, but it's a whole other different level when you say that you believe in spiritual forces such as Satan and demons, right? And that's where it gets messy, right? Now, my thoughts about spiritual forces were heightened um, because our daughter, who spent much of the summer in South Africa, would call and share. And she talked about how evil spirits were more talked about. They were more seen inside and outside of the church. And it was so different than our experience in the U.S. There is a stark difference about views of spiritual forces in our culture. Yet when you look at history, it's only about, about 300 years where the West has this widespread skepticism about evil spirits. You know, people in other parts of the world, such as Africa and Asia and India, they've always believed this. Um, many in the Western world seem to think that we're more advanced behind, beyond those primitive myths or ideas because we as Westerners are more sophisticated, more, more intellectual than other cultures. I mean, that is arrogant, isn't it, to think that we have more wisdom than other cultures? You know, we have a tendency in the West to boil everything down to scientific explanations or psychological factors. When we see evil like racism or violence, we say, well, it was probably because they just weren't raised right, or they lacked education, or we didn't have enough of the good kind of social systems. Those things are definitely and can be part of the problem, but all of those things don't explain things like the Holocaust or death camps. Some of the most educated people were part of the worst evil in World War II. C.S. Lewis writes about this Western tendency in his book, Screwtape Letters. Lewis offers one side of a conversation between two demons, and they were writing back and forth. So Screwtape is the veteran demon. So he, he writes to this novice who's trying to secure his first human soul for the purpose of eternal torment. So Screwtape tells him um, that how in our modern age we don't see or hear of demons because those are of the old world. We may believe Jesus dealt with demons, but today we don't have that issue. Screwtape's advice was to allow no apparent manifestation of demonic activity, so to lull people into more of a skepticism of their spiritual needs. So in other writings, C.S. Lewis expands upon this point. He says there are two dangerous pitfalls that we have in our thinking about Satan. One of them is that we give too much attention or credit to him. I mean, this is where people, you know, believe a demon is to blame for every bad thing that ever happens to them. Like if you lose your keys or if you get stuck in traffic, oh my gosh, that was a demon, right? Um, But the flip side is that what Screwtape references above um, was not giving any or enough credit that there are spiritual forces of evil at work in this world. We just read where Paul was telling us that we are in a fight, a spiritual battle with evil angels that want to bring destruction to you and to this world. And I think it's interesting that word fight means to wrestle, letting us know that every kind of fight we are, is, it's just more personal. It's a hand-to-hand kind of combat. We're on the ground. But many of us um, live like we're not in any kind of battle. So why is it important that we understand that this really is a battle? Because nobody prepares against a threat that they don't acknowledge, right? 
So when Paul says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, he is not saying that evil doesn't take on flesh and blood forms. Paul struggled with people. They flogged him, they stoned him, they imprisoned him. He experienced opposition from flesh and blood evil. But in this battle, we wrestle not only with flesh and blood evil. War, cruelty, violence, racism, greed, crime, poverty, they take on flesh and bodily forms where people participate, but it's in participating in something that's bigger beyond them that is humanly natural. The Bible tells us there's something beyond flesh and blood, and until you recognize that dimension of the evil in the world, you're not going to understand the depth and pervasiveness that it has. You know, we know in Genesis we learned that angels, some angels turned away from God. Lucifer, whose name was then turned to Satan, along with one-third of the other angels, they rebelled against God. They turned away from him. So we know that we're born into a world with evil angels, as well as we're also born into a world of sin. So we as people, we're going to sin and we participate in evil. And so when we talk about evil, we have to realize that there's just many different roots and causes which our human sinfulness and the demonic forces intersect. So there are people who do horrific evil things, such as hate crimes, and there are unjust social systems in our culture that are instituted by people that have caused enormous evil and devastating effects. But the Bible says that demons can also stand behind human institutions, such as governments and countries that produce evil effects through all those systems. I think Tim Keller sums up most things well, and um, he said this, It is not entirely possible to explain that all of the misery and evil in this world are only the product of our individual sinful choices. Evil spirits greatly magnify, aggravate, and complicate the sin in our hearts that we commit toward God, one another, and against our own selves. So in Ross's message um, a few weeks back, so it does look like I'm listening to your messages, right? Okay. Um, He focused on the concept of the now and the not yet. And he was talking about how it refers to the kingdom of God breaking into our world. And he used the analogy of D-Day and VE, the Victory Over Europe Day. And I was talking to Tori, our new um, children's pastor, after the service, and she said that analogy was really helpful for her because it helped her understand that the season that we're in because of D-Day. You know, after D-Day, the Germans knew that they had lost, and therefore they just had nothing to lose. And the fighting until VE Day was some of the bloodiest. And that analogy really reminds us um, that the enemy knows that he's lost because Jesus defeated sin, sickness, any kind of darkness on the cross and in his resurrection, that was his D-Day. But until V-Day, until V-E-Day, until Christ returns, we um, cannot take Satan and the evil angels lightly, for they have nothing to lose. They are cornered, spiteful enemy, they have no ability to win, and they have a hateful desire to do as much damage as possible before they go down. Now that understanding could put us in a place of fear, but we have such a hope and confidence because we fight from a decided place of victory. Jesus defeated death. And we work from that place toward any of our problems. So when we fight, we deal with um, difficult things, we don't begin with us. We begin with God's perfect work. And that's where we get our confidence. So, so maybe like some of you, I don't know, I grew up not spending a whole lot of time thinking about angels and demonic forces. Yet I do know one of the first times I remember was in 1976. And I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember this, but it was that movie The Omen came out. I never... Did anybody see that one? I hope not. 
I can't even see. Um, so anyway, um, I didn't see that movie, but it was scary. I didn't uh, see advertising, but my girlfriend told me two things about that movie. I was in fifth grade. I was terrified, you know, and I was, but I was in fifth grade and I still didn't have any pride. That night I went and snuck in my parents' room and I hid underneath their bed. I was really scared. Um, and so I didn't really think a lot about spiritual things after that event until I was in about 17. I started to date a guy who was a lot older than me. And so, um, you know, looking back at it now, um, he was a good person, but he had a lot of serious issues. And, um, but he had a lot of money. So I was 17, and I was naive and stupid, so I, I was dating him. So anyway, but I remember having two dreams, where this guy, in the dream, his, he, I could see his face was right in front of me, and then all of a sudden his face was like Satan's, right in my face. And like, I don't even know what Satan looks like, all right? But I knew in my dream when he was. And so I woke up just absolutely terrified. But I thought, okay, that was weird. That was scary. Well, I'll still keep dating him. Um, then the, I, the second dream came, and I was even more terrified. Because in that dream, I just knew that I was opening in a door that was incredibly dangerous. And again, his face was right before me, and it turned into like this Satan thing. And then I remembered, like, somebody had told me, like, if you say the name of Jesus, it's bigger than anything. So it should get away everything scary. So in my dream, you know, you're in that sleep paralysis, and I was trying to say Jesus, but I couldn't. And like, anyway, I woke up again, and I was terrified, and I did not date him anymore. Like, okay, um, I don't know. I, I think he's doing okay now. But anyway, uh, but this week I looked up that verse again, and it was a reminder of the power of just his name. In Philippians, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and earth and under the earth. You know, I looked up again that Greek word. What does every mean? Do you know what every means in Greek? It means every. It means any, all. Which means that every single person, every single demonic force has to bend its knee and recognize who God is. So after this dream experience, I was becoming more aware of spiritual forces. And so I decided to go to church a little bit more often. And I was starting to go to this one church. And it was one that time there was a, you know, when we have new learning, there's always those pendulums that you have. And so when you're trying to figure out what's that consistent truth in there. So it was the early 80s, and I was in this church that um, focused a lot more on dealing with evil spiritual entities. Um, now, there was some good stuff in it, but it got a little bit weird. I mean, that was that era that every album was scrutinized and played backwards to examine, like, for satanic messages. You remember? I saw in Ohio here in the 80s, um, somebody discovered that 60s TV show, Mr. Ed. Remember that one? That a horse is a horse, whatever. I guess if you play that backwards, it says the source is Satan, okay? I'm just saying. But that pendulum can swing pretty, pretty strong, right? Um, so anyway, with this uh, focus on reality of spiritual forces, they gave me books at the church on how to study hierarchies of different demons. And so then I had this really heightened awareness of Satan and this demonic realm. And I ended up spending more time focusing on him than the incredible and powerful nature of God. Because I was thinking Satan's everywhere. Like he's omnipresent. Like I thought he could read my mind. Like he's omniscient. You know, like um, always there. So... But again, that's crazy. You know, who really knows everything about me and the entire world? Who is always present? God, right? And, but in many ways, I made Satan bigger than God. So from that time, I can remember specifically in my college dorm room, like, there is no more. I'm not taking that. Like, that's ridiculous. So there's this quote. I'm never going to give Satan that much attention. So there's this quote I have in my phone from Bill Johnson. He summarizes it really well, I think. He says, I can't afford to live in reaction to darkness. Because if I do, darkness has had a role in setting the agenda for my life. And the devil is so not worthy of such influence, even in the negative. Jesus lived in response to the Father, 
and I must do the same. So it leads to our overarching principle when we deal with a spiritual battle. We are aware of spiritual forces, but we focus more upon who God is and what he is doing rather than what the devil is. You know, our son Derek, he's a history buff, um, and he told me that it makes perfect sense from a military strategy. He said if foot soldiers on the front lines in any ancient battle were to pay more attention to the enemy and react according to the enemy, their formation would fall apart and they would be easily overrun. But trusting in their great commander, those same troops can be led to victory. So while we want to be wise to Satan's scheme, and we're going to touch base on that, we do not want to live in fear because we are more and more aware of who God is, how infinitely more powerful he is than anything. So whenever we see darkness, be it such as lies or sickness or gossip, we know that God is doing the opposite, right? He is bringing truth. He's bringing health and hope and freedom. And that's where we land. You know, one of my all-time favorite verses is where Jesus makes everything clear. And John, he says, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So we know what Satan's agenda is, right? He's going to steal, kill, and destroy everything that matters to the heart of God. But Jesus makes it clear that Satan has nothing to bring to the table that can even compare what God has. Because in that stark contrast to Satan, Jesus uses the word abundantly which shows that he is bringing life. And again, I word, word kind of weirdo, I guess, but that word abundantly means excessive, superabundant, exceedingly abundant above, beyond measure. So Jesus is bringing life into every one of our circumstances that is infinitely more than we could ever imagine. And we also grow in confidence when we read what Jesus' closest friend John says to tell us what we should do in every circumstance. Because he says, little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. This lack of awareness of God's power um, concerns me. Because I I just want more of it in my life. I want to see more of it in our church. I want to see more of it in my friendships. Um, But it reminds me of when we lived in Oregon. Now, Oregon is a little different than Ohio um, in ways ways that they sometimes are just a little bit more open to, to spiritual forces of any kind, right? So public school teachers were known to talk openly about that, that they were good witches and they would lead their elementary school students in Wiccan chants and that was okay, um, which is one of the reasons why we didn't put our kid in this one kindergarten class. And so um, our, our oldest was in high school and he would come home telling us that he would talk to his Wiccan classmate and her dream in life was to marry a warlock and have baby Wiccans. Um, it was not uncommon for us to go to the grocery store and there would be um, witches around a tree dancing in some kind of chant. Um, so therefore, I don't know why, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was teaching a cross-cultural counseling class at a Bible college and, um, as, in the town. And as a part of that class, the students, I assigned them to participate in three different cultural experiences that they would, where they would experience what it's like to be in the minority. So they could go to like a Chinese or a Spanish-speaking church or go to some different you know, cultural festivals or maybe even go to a different um, political party town hall meeting, you know. Anything that's going to expand their understanding of a different culture and what it feels like to not be the majority. But I was, I was smart enough for this one. I did remind them that they had signed an honor code. It was a Bible college. And I told them that strip clubs were not part of the recommended cultural experiences. But I wasn't prepared that two of my students went to a community gathering for witches. And it was something that their neighbors were, were practicing witches and they had invited them to. And I, I love their hearts because they were trying to figure out how do I understand my my neighbors and they wanted to know that but it does not come across well when a bible college student calls their parent and says my teacher encouraged me to go to a witches meeting i mean i just didn't go over well so i put i put had to put more boundaries on but 
what their experience, um, I was reinforced by other people I've known that are a part of that community, was, and it saddened me that because the majority of the witches that were in that, in that meeting had been part of the church at one time, but they left because they were disillusioned and they had wanted to see more power. And like, oh my gosh, it just grieves me because, you know, what a lie did they believe, but what an admonishment to us as a church that, that we, there was a disconnect with the powerful and fullness of who God is that they would go elsewhere. So although I don't want us to focus on Satan, it is important to know, though, a few ways of how he tries to bring destruction. Biblically, we see that Satan has two main strategies, lies and accusations. Again, this is the last time I'll do this, but there's a Greek word that it talks about for 35 times the way that the Bible talks about Satan, and it uses the word diabolos, which is where we get diabolical from, but it means liar, slanderer, and accuses falsely. Satan is the deceiver who attacks your mind with lies, and he is the accuser who attacks your heart with accusations. Jesus describes Satan like this. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, how do, how do Satan's lies work in our lives? I mean, it can start when we listen to thoughts like this, like, go ahead, you can take this, you can do that, or everybody else is doing it, it's no big deal. Who cares? It's my life anyway, right? Then after you do it, you hear these accusing voices, and they say, oh, man, you are pathetic, you're no good, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, you're undeserving, you are nothing but crap. God doesn't love you, and God will never use you again. And those accusations cause us to look more at our sin than they do our Savior. We obsess over past sins because they've done damage, and we think that it can't be undone. It makes us feel like we need to be punished for sin. Sometimes we'll hear, like, well, real Christians don't have these kind of struggles. The devil knows what general strings that we are susceptible, what kind of lies we are, and he knows how to play those. So how do we fight those lies and accusations? Well, we get some of the foundational points from the verses that follow what we had just read about Paul when he said we were not fighting against flesh and blood. He talks about the spiritual armor that we're to wear. And, you know, I'm not going to read all of it, but it just talks about how, you know, we resist the enemy, um, we stand our ground, we put on a belt of truth and shoes, and we put all of this a shield and we have a sword, all of these things, a helmet of salvation, all of those things. But we don't have time to go into a lot of the detail about the specifics of the armor, But it gives us a framework to know that we are to gear up and to prepare. And the armor is for our protection so that we can be defensive, but we're also supposed to be on the offensive. I mean, it's not just armor to passively wait and like hope, I hope nobody shoots me. I know that my son plays video games and he can't stand campers. I guess that's a really bad thing. I don't want to be a camper, right? Um, So with this armor, um, we fight the lies and accusations. We remember the truth. That's why it's so important to know what the Bible says, because his truth is our sword And it cuts through those lies. I mean, we often don't need Satan's help because we can have a lot of destructive lies on our own way, but he amplifies that. He has no problem adding to those lies. And his job is to aggravate what is already in your head, and he stimulates the talk that goes on in your heart. So when we feel accused, what do we do, and how do we do this warfare and fight um, evil? We know that we have Jesus, our defender. He is sitting right next to God, and he is our advocate. So when Satan tries to accuse you and say, well, you failed again, and what's the use? You're just going to do that right again. You are hopeless. You know you have the most phenomenal defense attorney ever in Jesus. And he says, no, that is so not true. Her sin 
is no longer remembered. It cannot be used against her. There is nothing you can say to condemn her. Because every one of us has sinned, right? We are never going to measure up on our own. We never can go too far from God that he is not going to take us back. So in addition to lies and accusations that we deal with, we just deal with difficulties in life because it's a broken world, right? We face economic loss, betrayal in relationships, conflicts in the workplace. We deal with physical sickness. And when we face these difficulties, we know and see that God does two things. Sometimes God wants us to do something for us. And sometimes he wants to do something through us. So if God is doing something for you or for us, it's similar to like when Israel was being attacked by the enemy. Uh, One time it was King Jehoshaphat, and in fear, I mean the enemy was everywhere, he went and sought the Lord, which is always a very good plan. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and said, Do not be afraid or dismayed, for this great battle is not yours, but it's God. So just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. So there are basically sometimes in our lives that God's going to say, you have no role in this. I'm just going to show off. I'm going to do it for you. And I totally enjoy those times because it's not much work, right? But then there's these other times when God wants to do something through you. And that's where we need to act and obey. I mean, that could be like praying. It could be fasting. It could be forgiving someone who was malicious towards you. It could be giving time and money to someone. It could be speaking up and taking a stand like Wilberforce did against systematic evils. So in order for change to happen, we need to follow through with actions, and that's where obedience comes through. So when God is wanting to do something through us, it could be that there's a foothold in it that would be important to work out. Ephesians 4 talks about that our sin, especially our repeated sins, can give the devil a foothold in our lives. Sort of like I was doing with that one guy I was dating. I was opening a door that lets the enemy to have more access in my life. And if I hold on to bitterness, we open the door for evil, forces to have more havoc. Um, so the devil plays on what is already in you, but he cannot, he cannot make a person evil, but he can make a flawed person worse. And when God wants to do something for us, he's emphasizing, hey, you're my kid, and he wants us to know that, that he's got this. But when God wants to work something through us, he's wanting us to grow in knowing the authority that we have in him. We get to act and engage in bringing his kingdom into our lives and in the lives of others. So whatever lesson he's teaching, and we often get it wrong, we know what the answer is. We can just flip it, right? For us or through us. A visual that's been really helpful to me about thinking through um, spiritual warfare comes from Romans. And it talks about how the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I love picturing that whole thing about how God is our peace. He's coming and he crushes Satan under his feet. His rule of peace is becoming more and more realized in our lives. It helps me to realize what peace really is. Because when the world talks about peace, what is it? It's the absence of something. Absence of noise or conflict or war or no kids screaming, right? But peace in God is about the presence of someone. So this helps us see that no matter what we are going through, what junk, chaos, conflict or whatever, we can have peace because we have God, the Prince of Peace, with us. So as a final point, um, I wanted to give a picture of someone living intentionally in this spiritual battle. And and maybe it's something that you guys have seen. It's a story that you might be familiar with. But this summer I saw this video of a dad on America's Got Talent. And, um, you know, and I don't listen to music that much, and I'm not a Bee Gees fan, okay? But this was my happy song all summer long. Like, for the first million hits, I was at least 50-plus on it. Um, And now it's like at 12 million. But I was so drawn to this song 
and even more to the story behind it and why this singer sing it. So I would like you to see it. If we're on Facebook, this it may get cut off. We do have permission to show it, but um, there might be some problems with that. But here, let's go ahead and watch. My family's my reason why I'm here. My wife and my six children. Six, six. children. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that happens, especially because my children came out of foster care, when you're surviving, you can't dream. And that has been one of the most rewarding things, is providing them with a home and a safe environment where they're free to dream. That's nice. And so I'm here because I want to show them that if their dad can live out his dreams, then nothing's impossible for them. Good for you. Okay, Michael, well, listen, we're all rooting for you. Thank you. find singers on these shows is it about being technical or is it about being relevant and sometimes for me it's just about being real and a surprise if I'm being honest with you because you were so nervous I was concerned for you but I think sometimes actions speak louder than words I just love how he lives his life. He has this passion and realness with such a force and, it, and wanting to see his kids who are just surviving dream again. Um, this next clip, I'm going to show just another one. It's about he and his wife. They're sharing about they had um, complications with their pregnancy. They had one child, but they decided not to have any more kids after that. And when their daughter was eight, she started having dreams. Um, and she started telling them, I feel like I'm supposed to have three brothers. And she was... Um, she would not give up on this dream. She talked to her parents for three years. Now, he is a pediatric mental health nurse, and he knew he didn't have money to adopt. Um, but because of her persistency, they started to look into foster care. So I wanted to hear a little bit more of their story. Our very first call that we got after getting certified and going through all the process for these three little boys, and we absolutely knew, because of my daughter's dreams, that these were our, our sons, these were our children from the very beginning. 
when we got the boys, I was like, I got time and love, but I didn't know they would take um, mental sanity, so. They had been raised in a meth lab. They were out in the woods. There had been a lot of neglect in their lives, and no other foster home was able to care for them because they were just absolutely too wild. There was this moment after we brought the boys into our home, one of the boys began, he began to, his eyes began to roll back in the back of his head, and um, he was just laughing, this weird laugh, and my daughter looked up at my wife, Mom, I think that's a demon. <laughs> I think one of these boys has a demon. And I just laid over top of him, and I told every demon in hell, I said, you have no right to this child any longer. He is under my roof and he is under my name. I just understood in that moment, you know, exactly what the Father has done for us, that he covers us and he covers us with his name and it drives out all the darkness. Uh, we get another call and they said, we have this little boy and the only reason we're asking you to take him is because you're the only nurse in the foster care system right now. You're the only one qualified to take care of a little boy with cerebral palsy. We said, absolutely, yes, we will take this little boy. What I didn't know what was the amount of work that was headed our direction. This like whirlwind, going to physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech, neurologic appointments, because my son was shaken infant. At a year and a half, he was completely normal, but his caregiver shook him and threw him into a wall and it fractured his skull a lot of damage happened to his brain. They began to tell me all the things that Roddy would never do. He'll never eat, he'll never be able to see, he'll never walk, he'll never be able to connect with anyone. And by the end, they came back to me and they said, do you still want him? The amount of work, it began to really wear me down. I walked over to my wife and I was like, Ivy, I was like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I do not know if we can keep Rodrigo. I got in the car, God, if you really want me to keep this child, if this really is my son, then I need a sign, I need a sign. And I look up and they had just put up this big giant billboard. And on this billboard was this man who had pushed his son with cerebral palsy through marathons. And it said like, father, been behind son through like 50 marathons. And it was this big giant billboard. In, on the road that I, on my commute that I normally would take every day. And I remember looking up at that and I go, God, you actually gave me a literal sign, a billboard. And I just broke down in the car and I think I wept all the way to his appointment. And I just felt this like peace come over me and this new wind in my spirit that, okay, he is my son and I'm not alone in this. My father who's been behind me who's pushed me through so many struggles. He's with me in this moment and we can do this together. Wow. Isn't that awesome, the miracles? I just love how redemption, yeah, it's all over every one of those kids' lives. I love how supernaturally um, he just, he's intervening in their life. I love the determination, the confidence. I love how he take a, took authority over every demonic force that was affecting their son. And that he understood, if you heard him again, he, he said he knew that his name drives out all darkness. He knew what God had done for him. 
I, I mean, I totally love how he questioned whether he could take on that son, son with special needs and how God gave him that literal sign. That kind of tenacious love is like so much like God. It's this fighting in a way that's so naturally supernatural, and it shifts individuals and it shifts even systems to, to annihilate those destructive forces of evil in this world. I just wanted to show one brief last clip, and this was after Michael sings how um, sings, and it's how living a life of this kind of love and redemption it, it affects people. Look, oh gosh, as a let it out, Simon. as a it's dad, you know, I I kind of get, I, I couldn't, I can't imagine oh. what you've done and, and the fact that you you're on this show and. And you really need this. And you're a really, really special guy. And I don't know something about you. You're just an incredible person, an incredible human being. To do what you've done, taking on board, adopting all these kids and giving them life, and then your, your voice sings such truth and honesty. I cried at the first word you said. Heidi, we just need more men like you. We yes, really please. I don't know, gosh, it just, um, it inspires me to live a bigger life, right? I mean, the whole thing of fostered adoption always just undoes me. But it reminds me also of another quote that I have on my phone. And I look at it often. It's, it's from a missionary um, about from A.D. Millen. He was from the 19th century, and he went to a tribe of headhunters that were in the New Hebrides in South Pacific. No one had ever been there to this tribe and survived. They killed every single missionary that went before him. But he went anyway. And Millen, he wasn't killed by this tribe. He lived with them for 35 years. And when they buried him, they put him right in the middle of the village. And they wrote on his tombstone, when he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. And I often, I sit with that epitaph and I think, gosh, when did I and when did we as a church start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? And when did we start thinking that, it's, that playing safe is really safe? Because Jesus didn't die to keep us safe, right? He died to make us dangerous. And faithfulness is not holding down the fort. It's about living a life with more and more risks. And our goal is not just to try to get through this life safely until we die, right? And, and so my prayer for myself, for all of you, for all of the church, is that, that we, that when we live these normal, sometimes everyday lives, is that we see life as more of a faith adventure. And that we step into places of darkness, where when we encounter people whose lives are a mess, and even if ours are a mess, that we know that they're broken, that they need life and hope and answers. And when we show up, we know that darkness is lifted because we come with the light of Christ. You know, I was reminded of this last week when I was talking to a co-worker at school, and um, you know, she was reminding that it's Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And so she was just talking about how three of her students have died by suicide just within the last couple of years. And more than she can even count have been hospitalized for suicidal attempts and thoughts. And it just, just hits you again, like this battle is so real. And so one of the things that, you know, I'm wanting to do more intentionally as I go onto campus when I teach, you know, that every form of darkness that so easily envelops them would be broken, that God's light would take root in the depths of their heart. Because that's how we live. You and I were built to bring light everywhere we go, and darkness has to leave. So we're going to go into a time of just, we're just going to have one worship song, and I'm going to, I just want to pray that we would, um, just want to pray. God, I just want to thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are bigger and better than we could ever imagine. We thank you that you are so powerful and you're so good. We thank you that you 
um, just bring light in places that we didn't even know was dark. Um, We thank you so much for who you are. Lord, I pray that you would continue to um, give us a hunger for more, to risk bigger, to, um, to not step back, but to be offensive in bringing your kingdom come on this earth as it is in heaven. We love you so very much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.